Heavenly Father, as we cry out in this time, as we cry out uh, in the midst of our lives, maybe even cry out this morning, either obvious pain or obvious concern or worry or even that which only your Spirit can groan for and intercede for us, the point is we cry out, the point is we speak because you are God, you hear us, you are active and present and you are a caring, loving God. No matter what we go through in life and no matter... Uh, what comes our way, we can rest in that truth. Help us to be able to take the truth and not only just believe it, which sometimes is a feat in itself, but I pray that we can build upon it to not just, not solely just believe it's true, but live and breathe and act and walk and talk. Love. like it's true. Be with us this morning, God, as we proclaim Your Word. May it be glorifying to You and convicting to Your church. Just help us to be more like You and closer to You when we walk out of this building so that way we may be able to show You to the world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Once again, good morning, everybody. And uh, as I did ask for people to check in, I just want to give a quick shout-out. Good morning to the Goddard family who is joining us from a Kaiser Hotel this morning on their way out of, uh, their way out of town. Mm, collective sigh, So, but good morning to you. Good morning, Tim and Evelyn uh, from home. We pray that you're uh, comfortable and uh, whatever your drink of choice in the morning is hot or cold. Good morning, Dale uh, and the Brown family, Dale and Tammy. Good morning, Joe and Barb. Uh, hope you guys are well. Good morning, uh, Christina and Chrissy Doja from Lebanon. Good morning, Heidi Powell. Hope you and Tom are doing all right. Good morning, Nora. Uh, Thank you, Frank, for being here, but also hello, good morning, Nora. Um, good morning, Freemans, Jamin Misty, we hope you guys are doing well. Uh, good morning, Diana Brandwine, I'm glad you got the joke about it's gonna be May. That help anyone? Wrong era. Wrong era, yeah. <laughs> I'm not singing it again. You're welcome. <coughs> and good morning, Janet Kelly from Portland. I pray that uh, this morning service is encouraging and convicting to you. And good morning, everyone, who I haven't mentioned, but thank you uh, all for checking in, and thank you all for being here. You know, I, w- I want to sing in St. Now, just because, just to spite Ryan, if nothing else. No, we have other things to go for, which is more important than Justin Timberlake. Uh, no amends to that. <laughs> anyway, if you've been... Uh, Joining us and, and paying attention the last couple of weeks, you'll know that uh, we've had quite a bit of Scripture to cover, and that's just the result of wanting to go through a gospel like Matthew in a year. It's not the uh, shortest gospel, it's not the uh, longest book in the Bible, but it does take some big steps sometime. And this morning, uh, you know, it was funny in the morning, uh, last week, uh, I finished my sermon and I thought to myself, oh, I'm looking forward to next week because I'm only preaching over ten verses. Um, well, there's a reason that I covered only ten verses this week because I could preach on these for a long time, uh, as far as application. And that's the case with all scripture. But uh, I'm learning that I just can't take any scripture for granted because to really delve into it and to really take it seriously, uh, there's a lot there. And so I pray that even though we just covered ten verses compared to what we've been doing, that uh, that you will be able to get something out of this in your walk with God. I want to begin this morning with a true story uh, from, uh, this is secondhand, not uh, my story, but it's from someone else's. 
he was visiting a marine base, uh, learning about marine culture, learning about military culture, uh, when he encountered someone who is in full dress uniform going off to uh, what he told was a tribunal, a military tribunal, and he asked, well, what did he do? And uh, the Marine, uh, I just blanked on my military nomenclature, I think Marines are, I think Marines are colonels. Anyway, the, commun- the Marine commander basically said, well, he fell asleep on sentry duty, on guard duty, and he's going to tribunal determine whether he'll be kicked out or not of the Marines. And the observer kind of laughed and said, <laughs> kicked out for falling asleep on guard duty? I mean, there's surely more important things that you guys want to uh, punish for or want to you know, emphasize. And the commander says, no, you don't understand. He fell asleep, but then he denied it. And it wasn't until we had other witnesses come forward that he finally decided to take responsibility. Except that in the Marines, we don't believe you take responsibility when you choose. We believe you take responsibility when you do your actions. Accompanying him was another young Marine, and the commander pointed out to the observer, you see that gentleman to him. He also fell asleep on guard duty. But we have no problem with him, because he admitted it. What's the difference, obviously? The difference is accountability. The difference is believing that you are able to get out of something, which you do or do not do. There's a lot of things that go into that. Now, some people may say, well, that's a fanciful story and, and it's one that's indulged. Well, not really. In the military, they take it seriously. I actually had this happen to me. This is my airlift squadron uh, patch that I was a part of, the 4th Airlift Squadron. Uh, we have a donkey in our patch because we're the workhorses of the military. Fun fact, uh, the 4th Airlift Squadron is the longest-serving airlift squadron in the Air Force. It's older, actually, than the Air Force. This was commissioned in 1935. Air Force didn't become officially the Air Force until 1947. Nothing to do with the sermon, just a little FYI for you. This happened to me, actually. Not that same story, but it happened to me. No, I'm not going to tell you what I did. No, it was not very serious. Uh, It was actually pretty innocuous. But I had the same thing happen to where I did something, and I was forced to... uh, either confess or deny it. And I chose, I'm not getting, you know, look at me, I chose to admit to it, and my supervisor had a whole list of things he threatened that he was going to do, write me a letter of reprimand and bring me before the commander and such, and I went home thinking about my actions. Well, a week later, nothing had happened. Two weeks later, nothing had happened. A month later, nothing had happened. I sure wasn't going to bring it up again. I look in my little loadmaster folder, and the letter of reprimand was in there, unsigned, a little sticky note that said, let this remind you, your accountability saved you. Don't do it again. I didn't. What's the point of the story leading to the text this morning? Well, I'll make application as we go a little bit, but hopefully you can begin to see some of the threads. Jesus has been preaching. And he has been proclaiming who he is. Who he is as a Messiah. Who he is as God's Son. Who he is in the nature of the kingdom. Who he is. And people have been responding in various ways. Or, rather, they have not been responding. Which is the point of the first little bit of the text. You see, here in Matthew, we have a bit of a turning point. He has been preaching things... And right here in Matthew chapter 11, we have it 
viscerally, once again, what it means to be poor in spirit. Viscerally, what it means to be humble. Viscerally, what it means to be Beatitudes people in the fact that Jesus did miracles, has done miracles, has proclaimed things, healed the sick. He hasn't done this one in Matthew narrative yet, but he has healed the sick, he has cleansed the lepers, he has done all these things. And the question that we're beginning to turn to is what are you going to do with the fact that this is who Jesus is? Not necessarily just now here's Jesus. There's also a turning point here in Matthew chapter 11 in that, as we read last week, John the Baptist is in prison. And this affects Jesus. But also, historically, we begin to see that the crowd's reactions to Jesus now that John is in prison and his, um, he who is preparing the way for the Lord is in prison, the crowd starts to react differently to Jesus. The Pharisees no longer are in the way, in passive and, and staying on the forefront. They begin to get more involved with him. And so this is a turning point in Matthew in that since John is in prison, begin to see the shift of Matthew's narrative from identity to repentance. What I mean by that is it's no longer just about who Jesus is, what the nature of the kingdom is, as I said, but it's now about what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with this man who proclaims these things, who has sustained and, and proved his identity? What will you do? In Matthew 11.20, is a very visceral beginning of that turning point. Dan already read it very clearly, but let me read it again. Uh, for the sake of being able to delve into it. Then, Jesus, after he'd been proclaiming before about John the Baptist, and we talked about that last week, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and they have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would have been more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Ooh. For mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom. It would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And as we said before, some people listening to Jesus might have been like, Jesus, calm down a little bit. You know, go for a walk, pray a little bit. This is kind of, kind of blunt. Well, Jesus knows what he's doing, and he says everything on purpose. So what is the point of what he says? A little bit of background here. These three cities, these three cities rather, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were all very close to each other, and they uh, actually have a little bit of history outside the fact of that this is where Jesus has been proclaiming, uh, mainly. We as scholars think that um, Peter lived in Capernaum. And eventually, it's interesting, Capernaum would actually become a Christian hub later on, but not at this time. Bethsaida would also repent and be a place where Christians were very welcome, but not at this point. Chorazin too. So these are places not just that Jesus saw on a map or heard about, but these are places in which he walked through, talked to the people, did miracles, and is reacting to their immediate reaction. To, reaction to what? Well, as I said, Jesus has gone through, and in these places, proclaimed the kingdom of God in the way that only he can, which is through the miracles that prove he is who he is. And apparently, what's the response? Well... Nothing. 
Jesus had gone through these places, proclaimed miracles, healed the sick. According to him, according at this time and place, these cities' reactions were, so what? Their reactions weren't as cute as Elmo. If they would have, you know, what's the point? Go away, Elmo. You're distracting us. What was the point of miracles? What was the point of Jesus' ministry? It wasn't just to heal people. It wasn't just to give people food. It wasn't just to show off. It wasn't just for anything. What was the point of Jesus' ministry in these cities? It was to proclaim himself as the Messiah, but also build on the foundation of John the Baptist, which leads to repentance and salvation. And he says... If these things would have been done in Gentile cities, that's the implication here. He's saying, hey, Bethsaida, hey, Chorazin, they would have been done Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago. But you Jews, who think you know something, who think that you are good with God because of your lineage, you who, who think that you have a seat at the table, who think that you're owed a seat at the table, no less, you who think... You are not accountable for your faith and your faith alone. At this moment, Jesus says, Gentile cities would have reacted better than you. Ouch. Capernaum? Sodom would have repented if they would have seen these things. We all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't, go back and read Genesis. It's not a fun story. Jesus is saying here a couple of things. One, he's saying that God judges people according to the opportunities they have to respond to who he is. So, on the one hand, contextually, we know that this is, in the moment, that generation, Jesus is proclaiming judgment and saying, look, if you don't get your act together, bad things are going to happen. I'm noticing that you're not responding. Eventually, all three of these things would. Eventually. But not until after Jesus died. Jesus is saying that, look, you have seen with your own eyes. This is the same thing that Paul... <laughs> this is the same reason that Paul calls Galatians in chapter 3 of Galatians. You stupid Galatians, because on the one hand, you saw people coming in the Spirit of God performing these things, and yet you're believing these other people. You foolish people. In the moment, in the generation... God judges people according to the opportunities they have to respond to who He is. Now, contextually, this is important because it's saying that this is immediate in that generation, not for all time. But also, this is an important principle about how people who never have the opportunity to hear about God or do, this is where we go whenever we answer those big questions. What about these people? What about those people? Well, it's not talking about it, but this principle does extend. God judges people according to the opportunities they have to respond to who He is. We bring the entirety of Scripture together. We know that the heavens and earth proclaim who He is. We know that people can come um, in ways that aren't directly from a message or a messenger, but yet faith in God. There are, as the Scripture says about it, we know that God judges people according to the opportunities they have. And we trust Him with that. But we trust Him with that, but also it makes us question and wonder about the ways that we respond ourselves is the point of this text. He's speaking to Jewish cities who have seen Jesus and have not done a thing. It's always worth asking, even, well, maybe especially among Christians, 
Are we really reacting to the right things? Are we reacting for the right reasons? Are we coming to God for the right reasons? I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm not trying to say about doctrine. I'm not trying to say... I don't want to get into some of those. I don't want to distract from it. I'm saying, are you coming to God with the right heart? Not necessarily, if I do this, then God will own me. Or if I do this, then God will save me. But come to Him in the spirit of poorness, of poor in spirit, of humility, of saying, yes, God, see what you have done. I don't deserve it, but please have mercy on me, a sinner. A sinner. The second thing we learn from this is that this is the difference between a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, a cup of cold water and a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. We just got done talking about that in the last section, in the last chapter. This is the difference between a cup of cold water and one in His name. What's done is to lead the receiver to God. That's the difference between doing something good and doing something in Jesus' name. Jesus wasn't doing miracles just for fun. Jesus wasn't doing miracles just to show off. Jesus wasn't doing miracles just to heal people or feed people or to help people see. That's the benefit of it. But He was doing it in order to lead people to Father God, to lead people into the nature of the kingdom, to lead people to salvation. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you give people a sermon before or after that you give them a cup of cold water. Sometimes that works even less. But it means that you do it, one, with your intention and your prayer to lead these people to God, but then two, it means that you need to be aware of how you come across, of how you act, and seize any opportunity you have to point that person to God. It has to do more about the people doing it. Well, not more. It has to do with both the people doing it as well as the receiver. You can't control how the receiver receives it, but you can control your intention and your reasoning for doing it. What's the difference of giving a cup of cold water versus one in his name? Both are good. The one in Jesus' name intentionally is done to lead people to God. And Jesus is saying that's what's lacking here with these cities. It's harsh, but it's worth considering Sometimes the people that think that they are most holy are the people who think they know Christ the best. Sometimes the people who think they're doing exactly what God says and think that they are good with God are Christians. Bring this up in just a little bit. We're not just talking about people who aren't responding. Sometimes I think the principle here also applies to people who have responded, but yet are maybe not responding in line with the kingdom. Hold that thought as we continue on here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a lot here. Let's take this little bit by little bit. Thank you, Father, Jesus said, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus has brought up children quite a bit here. 
One of the reasons, I think, is, is that he's commenting on the generation. He's calling someone a child, same way as it is now, if you're an adult and you think yourself wise, is a bit of an insult. It's meant to grab, grab your attention. But also, he's commenting here, I think, on the reasoning and intention of the generation that he's proclaiming to. You see, the Pharisees and most Jews at that time knew the law. They knew Scripture. In fact, they knew it so well that they started to define what not working on the Sabbath meant. That it meant exactly these many steps. It meant this, but not this. They started to really delve into here's exactly what we must do and not do in order to stay righteous with God. Spoiler alert, Jesus is basically calling those who think they have it all figured out foolish and those who know they don't have it figured out yet wise. He's saying that in some times, the knowledge of what you know, you must do this and must do this and we do this and not do that, you're missing true wisdom. First of all, let's get what he's talking about. What is he talking about here? I think that what he's talking about that's hidden from people is a relationship of active discipleship is how to know God and see Him revealed. Now let's break this down just a little bit. Relationship. First of all, that's an important word. Jesus never asks anyone, what do you know about God? What do you know about me? At least those who want to know Him. He asks, do you know the Father? Do you know me? Relationship trumps knowledge. Knowledge is important. But knowledge about God, knowledge about Christ, knowledge about wisdom is not the same as knowing God, knowing Christ, and knowing Him through and because His own wisdom. It's the difference of knowing about about your spouse, about your mother, about your loved one, versus actually knowing them. You know about how many people. Pick a random person. Most of them, I would guess, knows something about uh, Albert Einstein. Who in here actually knows him? Knew him? There's a big difference. There's a huge difference. Likewise, for us, let's get personal, there's a big difference in knowing about one another versus actually knowing each other. There's a big difference in actually knowing about what's going on in our lives versus actually living life together, which is what discipleship is. Discipleship has been... Come down on my soapbox before I get up there. Discipleship has been messed up by the modern church, not just us. We too. Discipleship is not knowledge. Discipleship is not a course. Discipleship is not something you sit down and study. Discipleship is living life together in the kingdom. You cannot have discipleship without relationship. And in the kingdom, you better not have relationship without discipleship. Not that you sit down and go, all right, now in our relationship model, we are going to disciple each other by looking at the... No, it's living life. It's going, this is what's happening in my life. What do I do? Well, let me pray for you. Hey, this is what's happening in my life. Praise God, that's awesome. Hey, you want to come hang out? Anyone? That's discipleship. Not just knowledge, but knowledge of who God is and who His kingdom is by living regular life together in fellowship, in koinonia. That is how God 
is seen and revealed. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus revealed who God is through three years to twelve men, particularly to three. He didn't just sit down one day and say, here's about God. Blah. And you think, well, that's true, but I mean, that's not applicable. We need to do something else. Let me ask you this question. Those of you who have raised children, or have almost raised them, when was the day that you sat down and just said, all right, here's the day I teach you everything about life. Here you go. You are now taught. Good luck. We don't raise our children like we try to help each other in the church. We don't raise our children like we try to disciple each other in the church. We try to disciple in the church sometimes by saying, here's a course, here's a study. Is that important? Yes. But if we try to raise our children like sometimes we try to mature each other in the church, I wouldn't want to see the result of that. Active discipleship takes time. Active discipleship takes relationship, true relationship. It takes focus. It takes intentionality. The point is that's what's hidden from people who think that righteousness and relationship and knowledge is the key to these things. People who can know about Jesus by saying, yes, he did that miracle, therefore this means this. No, no, no. Respond. Come to God, not just know about God. point of that first passage is that as little children they learn in the moment as little children they take what you give them as little children they learn sometimes over and over by life that's the way we come to God and that's the way honestly we ought to treat each other once again I'll comment on that the people who most often think that they have the wisdom and they have the understanding are Christians, are people who think they know. I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but just to simply make us ask the question, what are we assured in? Because what Jesus says we should be assured in is this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, right offhand, you might be thinking this sounds awfully familiar to another very famous passage. You'd be right. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Absolutely. But what does that mean? Well, the obvious meaning is that the path to salvation, the path to God, the door to God, as, John, as Jesus calls himself, is John 10, 10, is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, the obvious response that someone may think to that is, well, if Jesus claimed exclusivity, you know, that seems a bit exclusive. Now, it worked on my computer. Exclusive. Some people may say, well, Jesus, you know, you're the only one to God. Well, that's a little bit exclusive. In, in fact, that's one of the major criticisms of Christianity. You guys think that you are the only people who have it figured out. You think that you're the only one. You know, how dare you? I've actually been told. How dare you tell me that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to salvation? 
Well, let's think about it for a moment. And let's not even use Scripture because oftentimes people who talk that way are not interested in what Jesus says so. It's like, well, that's the whole point. I have a problem with that. First of all, every religion, every belief is exclusive of something else. Even if you believe that there is no one true way to God, you are being exclusive of the fact that there is an ultimate truth. By the way, if you say that there is no ultimate truth, or no absolute truth, you're making an absolute truth statement, and therefore not correct, but that's delving beyond our purview this morning. Anytime you make a truth claim, you're excluding something else, whether it's another religion, whether it's the lack of religion, even science does it. Now, science and the Bible, I believe, are meant to work together. They don't have to fight. And there are other things we can learn on that. Talk to Jose, Dr. Jose Reyes on that. He has a whole big thing about science in the Bible, which is much better than anything I could tell you. But I will tell you this. Science and the Bible are meant to work together. However, both people who preach Bible and people who do science in the extreme case often try to make truth statements that exclude the other one. That's not right. Even people who are atheists and say well, there is no God, there is no religion, are making a truth claim that excludes anyone who has religion and anyone who believes in a God. All this to say, this is an apologetic point of the sermon apparently, all this to say is that exclusivity is not a, crit a criticism that can be levied at Jesus and be credible because every belief has exclusivity. Even science, even atheism has, exclu has exclusivity. So it's not a valid critique. If you want to find the truth, it's somewhere else. But also what this means, and this is more for us Christians, or at least those who believe in Christ, is something much more pertinent. Jesus is saying, is he the only way to God? But he is also saying that he is the only one who can define and reveal what God looks like. Meaning, if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know how to walk like God, talk like God, speak like God, be like God, we go to Jesus. First, not doctrine. You see the difference? Let me put it this way. If there is anyone, any church, any preacher, any elder, any church member, which says, this is the way we act, or this is not the way we act, and it's different than Jesus... They're wrong. Jesus is saying, I reveal the Father, not teaching. I reveal the Father, not what your church or your congregation or your preacher says that you should do or not do, that you should act or not act. I reveal who God is. Be like me. Hopefully this isn't an issue. Too often it is. There's ever, I'll say this just to make it personal. If I ever preach something which you say that's not what Jesus is like, don't listen to me. Because Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. And Jesus alone. Out of that, he says, my yoke is easy. Uh, burden is light. Because He's the only one who reveals the Father in the entirety. He's the one who defines what God is like. He says, what I reveal, 
is that those who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. There's a couple of things here we can infer. One, the yoke of the law was something often talked about in Judaism, and it was a heavy yoke. Do this, do this, do this exactly, or you will be punished, you will be out of God's kingdom. Jesus is saying that's not the point of the law. The law is meant to point you to God. The law is meant to inform you that righteousness and holiness impact every aspect of your life, not to condemn you at every term. That's what law does eventually, because no one can keep everything perfectly. That's not the point of the law. The point of the law is to be like God. Be holy because I am holy. So he's saying that when, talking to people who are usually slaves, disenfranchised poor people here, who would do the physical work, the work of the kingdom shouldn't be burdensome. The work of the kingdom shouldn't be heavy. The work of the kingdom shouldn't be something which is dragging you down and pressing down upon you. He's saying it should be a privilege and it should be something which you strive to do that you try to make every aspect of your, God, of your life like God. But he's also saying something else. He's saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am to a lowly in heart. Once again, he's saying, I reveal the Father, therefore act like me. Whenever a young oxen is being trained, to pull something or to have a yoke upon them, what do you do with it? You put an older oxen, an older horse next to it that they may work alongside. Now, the older horse, the more experienced one, takes the majority of the load. But the younger one learns and eventually takes on more and more and more and more until they're pulling all they can. Jesus is saying, this is what I do for you. This is what I do for you. I'm coming alongside you, working with you, taking the brunt of the load in order that your burden may be light. Not just in terms of the law, not just in terms of the kingdom, but I think much more than that. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We know eventually that the burden that Jesus carries and the yoke that we yoke ourselves to Him is the cross. Passages like, Take up your cross daily and follow Me. Paul says in Galatians, For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore I have been crucified with Christ. The kingdom work that Jesus first demands is to sacrifice ourselves. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Make your life a living sacrifice. Make your life a sacrifice that is transformed to look like Jesus, which then looks like God. He's saying this is not meant to be a burden. This is meant be light. This is meant to be joyful. This is meant to be something you can handle. One of the things that we can learn from this is that Jesus' yoke and burden is light not because He demands less but the weight that presses down on humanity of death and sin and evil it weighed on Jesus first and it weighs on Jesus most. As long as we are on earth, Jesus is next to us taking the brunt of the weight that presses us down. And it's not lifted in your heart just by knowledge, but by actively knowing who He is who works next to you. But also we learn that Jesus' yoke is light not because he demands less, but that the faith and life Jesus demands is ultimately worth everything that we do bear. It's been said that one day we get to 
run away to somewhere, sit on a cloud and strum a harp for all of eternity. Well, that's poor consolation for dealing with death of loved ones, dealing with pain and evil and injustice in this world. I happen to think that heaven is more than that, which I'll preach eventually. But first and foremost, what Jesus says is that we are to live the kingdom. We are to bring Jesus setting ultimately everything right now and live in that truth even if we don't see it revealed quite yet. That's what I think he's talking about here. Whenever you're a slave, whenever you are injusticed, if that's a word, whenever you are poor, whenever you are hurt, whenever you are broken, it's poor consolation to say, well, one day you'll be okay. However, trusting in the ultimate setting of everything right is something different. Jesus promises not just that you'll escape this world and live forever, but yet He will ultimately set everything right. Therefore, every death will be redeemed, every wrong will be righted, every sin will be redeemed, everything wrong that ever happened into you and this world and in all eternity will be made right somehow in the fullness of time. That's different than just, oh, one day it'll all be hunky-dory. No, Jesus will fix and make everything right which was wrong. For some, it might have to happen sooner. That's my little one. Sorry, Amy. (laughs) She didn't like that point. I'll hear about it later. This is what Jesus promises. This is the yoke that Jesus asks of us. That by yoking with Him and bearing the burden of living the kingdom now, the knowledge that it's not worthless. Everything that happens to us in life, everything that happens to us, good or bad, is not just lost for time, but everything that's taken into account, used for the kingdom, and will be made right. Every loss, every pain, every sorrow will be redeemed in God's love. still means that sometimes the burden is heavy. But it means that bearing the burden with Jesus is worth it. Which is ultimately what this passage is about. Don't just come to Jesus because it's a good idea. You don't just come to Jesus to get something. You come to Jesus in poorness of spirit because you know you're not worth it. And He gives it to you anyway. But also you come to Jesus because only in Him does anything and everything have any meaning at all. Only in Him do the sorrows and triumphs of life have meaning. Only in Him can pain be turned into joy. Only in Him can work and burden of the now ultimately not just disappear but be that's what those cities missed that's what people who have the wrong kind of righteousness miss and that's what people who know they need it long for I pray that this text convicts us 
of one. Never let our own definitions of Jesus or God or church get in the way of who He really is. I pray that this text convicts us to question in a good way, to reconsider, to reconvict ourselves of our motives for doing kingdom work, for being a part of the kingdom. I pray this text reminds us that, yes, it doesn't say that life will be easy, but it says there is meaning and reason that only is found in being yoked with Jesus in the kingdom of God.